This is Off the Set with James Tolley. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a chance to run with the ABC Action News cameras down to this guy's place of business right now. Pete Scalia is the executive director at St. Vincent de Paul, the community kitchen in Clearwater. And we went down and shot a really cool feature story, Pete. We got a chance to see you cooking up everything in the, in the morning at the, before the crack of dawn. I mean, yeah. you're, you're there really early <laughs> doing your thing. It, it was great to, to see what you're doing. You're not just feeding people every day feeding the homeless. You also have a, a program, the STARS program. You're putting people back to work. Yep. And that's going to continue this year. Uh, you're getting ready to start those classes back up uh, next uh, next month, I believe, October, right? Yeah, we have. Currently, there's a, uh, there's a virtual class going on right now as we speak, but the next live class will be in October. That's really exciting, especially everything you've gone through this year. You, you, you told me, you said you really pride yourself on the fact that, look, hurricanes didn't stop us from feeding people every single day the pandemic hasn't stopped us from feeding people every day yeah we're it, it, you know we're we're blessed we have a lot of really good volunteers a lot of a lot of very dedicated people and uh, yeah it's just what we do it's it, it just we're not going to be stopped we no, feed people clearly so you want to hear more about pete i've got the rebound tampa bay podcast that is out you can download that pete's our latest guest on that particular program check it out we take a real deep dive on everything pete's done with st vincent de paul and what the whole organization has done for the city of clearwater great stuff you and i cross paths last year i'm emceeing an event for one of my favorite organizations in the entire bay area the kimberly home it's a pregnancy resource center everybody there has always been so sweet to me and you come up to me and you say, hey, I like what you're doing up there. <laughs> yeah, I like to tell jokes. I get the kids involved. And, you know, we were, we were having a lot of fun that night. Would you be interested in hosting an event for me? And then from there, we just really became pals. I mean, we, you know, we've met over lunch. You've talked about a lot of different things. So it's really great to have you come in here and shoot the breeze with me as we kind of take things off the set here. No, no, it's fine. It's a pleasure talking to you. We have a good time every time we're together. Because your, your background is so fascinating to me. So you... For a long time, you managed hotel casinos yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. And I made the joke when we did the feature, but, you know, I mean, this is like, you know, anybody come up with this analogy, but you know, casinos take money from people. <laughs> and here you are in the second part of your life. You, all you want to do is just try and give back. As give it back. Can. Give it back. Yeah, but I, it's kind of funny because my background is so, um, I've had people tell me, oh, you should write a book. You should. And I'm like, I can't write a book. Number one, I be embarrassed to write a book but number two I don't think anybody would really believe this story you know I started working in casinos in Las Vegas when I was 14 years old yeah 14 nowadays <laughs> that's not even legal okay? no, no it's not but I was uh, I started as a as a bus boy in room service working from 10 at night till 2 in the morning um, till 6 in the morning and I would drive into work with my mom and she would drive me home she worked right across the street in Vegas a long time ago. It was just a little two-lane road. Um, she worked at the Dunes Hotel. And in her job at the Dunes Hotel, she heard some, she worked at what's called the boss's station. Yeah. And they were saying they needed to hire some busboys and stuff for room service at Caesar. So she said, I'll get my kid. And that's how I got the job. And they were like, oh, send them over. So I would drive in with her, I would drive home with her, and then I would go to school. I would go to school from eight until two. And um, nobody really thought anything about it. I mean, I came down from clearing the halls one night 
and the uh, union rep was there. <laughs> he goes, "Who are you?" And I, you know, I said, "Who are you?" You know, and he goes, "Well, I'm the union rep, and you can't have this job without being in the union." And I said, "Well, I got the job. I'm here now." And he goes, "One thing led to another. And I think it was like five dollars, and I was in the union. He gave me my union book. Those are your dues. Right? So, as far as the union concerned, as long as my dues are paid, I'm in. And that's what I did. And uh, all I would do." The job wasn't difficult. I'd go up, I'd clean the hallways from uh, tables and trays and bring them down and run them through a dishwasher and then I'd set the tables for the day shift. Back in those days, room service in Las Vegas, room service day shift was incredibly busy. People would wake up and they want their breakfast delivered. And then I just, over the years, I just bounced from job to job to job. Uh, I was... Uh, well, back to your room service. You had to see some interesting things there, delivering room service in Vegas. Yeah, but I don't know that I can even talk about some of that stuff on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I used to do it. That's why I know. I, I, I also spent some time in the hospitality business before I got into broadcasting. And I will tell you, you just... <laughs> It's just you just see things. I mean, what what can I say? When people order room service, sometimes you you see, you hear things was, you shouldn't see. You know, here. it was it was a it was an education. Um, and and the the waiters that I worked with would be like they would know what's going on in different rooms. Okay, and so a room would there were no ice machines on floors and stuff. So if a room came called down and said we need ice sent up, the waiters would say like they don't want to run an ice order up because that's not money for them. But they would make sure they'd say, here, they would take the ice and bring it over to me and say, run this up to room number, you know, 2210. And I'd like a dummy, I'd okay. And I'd go running up there and walk into the room and see things that I'd never seen in my life. <laughs> that's good. So so uh, you mentioned after doing the busing, you, you always kept your foot in no matter what you were doing, right? Yeah, I was, I was pretty lucky because I wasn't afraid to work. It was a different era. Okay, and I asked questions, and people uh, showed me how to do things. One time, I was I was a busboy, but I was working in the dealer's lounge, and it was like three o'clock in the morning, and a dealer wanted a BLT or some kind of a sandwich. It wasn't that big, so I just hopped behind in the pantry and I started making the sandwich. Unbeknownst to me, the assistant executive chef walked into the kitchen and saw me there. And I had the sandwich, I had it all done, and I was starting to walk back into the, into the dining room. And he grabs me by the collar and says, what are you doing? And I, so I told him, I said, hey, I'm just making the sandwich for the guy. He goes, well, where is uh, the young lady who's supposed to be working there? And of course, I just shrugged my shoulders and said, I, I don't know, because I knew where she was. She was off with a, a waiter somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, then he looked at what I had made and he, he let me go and I served it. And then he came back to me like at the end of my shift and at six o'clock in the morning, he comes up and he goes, where did you learn to make that sandwich? And I said, I just watched them being made here. And he said, you want to come work for me? <laughs> and so one thing led to another. And I went to work for the, in the chef's department. I started working in the main kitchen and I started working in, we had these giant vats where we would make our own soups and, and everything from stock. And I just started learning, seriously, I mean, the butcher shop, the bakery. I, I worked, you know, in different areas. It's funny, all these years later, you get a chance to apply that, though, with that, the work you're doing over at the community center. It's so funny because all of the jobs that I had, ultimately, ultimately, I went into the Navy. And I, when I was 17, I graduated high school, went in the Navy, came back to Caesars, and I went, enrolled in UNLV. 
And ultimately, I became the general manager of Caesar's Palace. Now, along the way, I had done just about every single job you can do in a, in a hotel casino. I had, uh, I worked in valet, I worked in a bill, a front desk. Mm -hmm. I wasn't an engineer and I didn't do any of the jobs that were quote unquote women's jobs back then, like cocktail server, um, PBX operator, uh, cashiers. Those were ladies only jobs. But by the time I became general manager, yeah, I'd done just about everything. And, um, when I started doing this, my wife, and I, I told you in, the, in the, the feature, she was the one. We were sitting in church one day and she said, why don't you, they were looking for a volunteer cook at the kitchen. So why don't you do this? I'll give you something to do. I was retired. Yeah. And so I said, okay, so that's it. I started cooking on Thursdays. But it's remarkable that once I became the executive director, all of the things that I had to do had been something you it, had. It was something I had, you done. had done. It all tied in together. And my wife was the one who said, isn't it funny? It's almost like you were prepped for this job all of your life. And yeah, it, it's just the way things work out. It doesn't work out like that too much anymore, though. Going back to you becoming a general manager at, at these casinos, like your first GM job, you had pretty much done every single job around there. That just It just doesn't happen too often. You know, it, in my... In my business, for example, it's very rare that you have a general manager who's been both in the, in the sales team and been with your news team. It's just, it's very rare. I've had it. Um, I don't think it's necessary, but it just doesn't happen. Um, I was going to say, you know, I heard a speech one time by, of all people, the play-by-play -play announcer for the Baltimore Orioles was a keynote speaker at my college. And he mentioned this pyramid, this, this pyramid philosophy that he had about broadcasting and it was I got to build the base of my pyramid so I need to learn everything about broadcasting I have to be behind the camera I got to produce I got to write I got to do all these things and as I as my years of experience grow I'm going to center in on something and therefore you get the, to the top of your pyramid sounds simple but for some reason it always stuck with me I always thought about that so that's exactly how I approached my career I was like I'm just going to learn everything and sure enough 10 years in I was really centered in on what I do now, and that's that's news anchoring. So, very similar. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so funny because that's the way I came up. I don't know how else to do it. I was I was fortunate. I had um, the guys who ran Caesar's Palace, and we're going back now. Originally, I mean, we're going yeah, give back us a, to the give late us a 60s. Year. Give, yeah, give yeah, us a year. the late sixties, early seventies. All right. Speaking of the Orioles, they had some pretty good teams back then. Yep, Mets too. Um, <laughs> I was in the Navy from 71 to 75. So a few years before that, when I started working there, I get out of the Navy, I go back, I'm in school. And um, unbeknownst to me at the time, and, and a couple of other guys, a lot of the guys who were running Caesar's Palace were really good casino guys. Sure. They didn't necessarily have had the benefit of a higher education. There, there were executives who obviously had that, but within the casino proper, there were guys who basically, they'd just grown up with it. They were good operators. And they decided, they identified some of us younger guys that were going to college at the time. And, and they said, you know, these guys, this is the future. So they just started moving. There was no set trainee program. There was nothing like that. But they were just moving us around. And, you know, you'd be in, a, in one particular area. I mostly came up out of food and beverage. And then I made the move over to the hotel side of things. And um, 
you just learned. And they were very demanding guys. They didn't take any crap from anybody at any time. It was valuable lessons learned. Sure. But they taught you things like, and I, I always laugh when I say this, here's the philosophy that I learned how to manage a hotel casino, right? Rule number one, get the people in the door. Rule number two, get my money out of their pockets. Okay. <laughs> right. That's how the bosses explained it to me. Right. Which today I think we call sales and marketing and guest services. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how far you want to go into this, but you were explaining to me a lot of the behind the scenes workings of a casino and you were talking about an instance where you had a, a just a bank of slot machines with a grand prize. Yeah, well, it and is, this and, and the money that you were able to generate off of that blew it blew my mind. Well, it's it's not that casinos operate in any way that's that's underhanded. That's the first thing most people should understand. Okay, go ahead. You're not gonna you're not gonna jeopardize your gaming license by cheating. How a, how a, ready, folks? Here's how a video poker machine works. This is how it's programmed, and nobody can change that because inside the video poker machine, there are some microchips. And I take a video poker machine and I get a microchip that I order from the, from the distributor and I say, I want this machine to have a payout of something like 97.3%. That's, that's the payout return. So you're gonna get a lot of play on the machine. And I put that in my casino. Now I can take- You can choose how much you want the payout to be. I can choose whatever the, the jurisdiction is you can, you can be in that range. In other words, um, in Colorado, when I was in Colorado, I believe it was 80%, which is a pretty tight machine, okay? okay. Anywhere from 80% to a 99% payout. That was your range. And here's what happens. You don't get the control of that chip. When you're ready to put that chip into your machine, you call the division of gaming. They send out a, an agent, and he has what's called a Cobitron machine. And he takes that chip and he puts it in the machine. It's like a handheld computer. Mm -hmm. But he verifies that that's what that chip does, 97.3. He then puts it inside, he puts it in the machine and seals it with evidence tape. And then that gets locked behind two keys. You keep one key in your cage, mm -hmm. they keep the other key. So you, you really can't get in there and change that. And God forbid, if they ever open that machine up and that evidence tape is gone, you're in so big is trouble. your license. Yeah, you're in big okay? trouble. So now let's say I have 100 machines and I want, my, I want to have a good casino and I want it to have a decent return for the players. Yeah, let's so talk about play. the strategy here of why you'd want to have a machine that pays out a lot. Because I'm not losing any money. If I if my average if the average machines on the floor if it all comes out to ninety six point four percent payout, the people who come in there are going to play a lot. But if I have twelve machines that are linked together on a bar, and the average payout is ninety six point four percent, that's the play return. Every machine is programmed. Every machine is programmed to win. For the the video poker that the royal flush to come up between one and 35,000 plays. Now, theoretically, you can have a machine that's never been played. Yep. The first time it's played, the, the, the Royal comes up, and the very next time it's played, 
the Royal comes up. Then another 70,000 70,000 plays. plays later before you'd ever see another Royal. Theoretically, that's how it's programmed. Sure. You don't control that. Nobody controls that. That's just in the programming. So now let's say you have 12 machines linked together and you're betting them. And you, in order to win the progressive jackpot behind the, the bar, um, there's a meter. And you mm. set the meter at $1,500. That's the jackpot that you're going to pay. Now you have 12 people chasing that jackpot. In order to win that jackpot, you have to have maximum coins played. So that's $1.25 per play. When you look at that meter, for every dollar bet, the meter goes up one penny. So if you're ever in a casino so think about and you're that. looking at those meters and you see the the the, the, the sense it's just spinning, right? spinning up. And, yeah. and you can't keep your eyes on it. That's what's happening. That's all those machines are being played at maximum That's coins. A dollar. At a dollar, every dollar goes in and a penny goes up on the jackpot. So you told so, me when you write those jackpot checks, you do it with a smile on your face. Well, yeah, let's so the jackpot hits at uh, $1,675. Sure. Okay. So I'm paying you out $1,675. Mm -hmm. Gladly. Gladly. All day. I want you to have fun. Yeah, it's great. You feel good you won. Mm -hmm. And I want you to feel good. Just well, do the math real fast. Yeah, well, it, oh, I, I can do it. I can do it. Of course, I just I had to ask you, you know, anybody out there who, who enjoys gaming and, and going on, maybe going to the Hard Rock Casino here in Tampa, there are a couple of cruises that go out where you get in international waters, you can play more of the, the, the table games. I guess the situation right now happening in Florida is it's, it's class three gaming. My understanding is we had to do a lot of, I had to write up a couple of stories on this last year. It was an amendment that did pass, by the way. It, it that would allow these more of these table games in the state, but apparently there's a couple of other hoops that have to be jumped through. So we're in a weird position in Florida where it's either games of games of skill, table games of skill like craps or I think roulette's considered one. Poker. Poker. So we're in a weird spot where we can't have some of those when you're in Florida. Anyway, but you, know, I, you know what's funny about that, and, and I can only speak to to my experiences. I grew up in Las Vegas. Grew up in Las Vegas. There was, it's a 24 hour town. You can go to a bar and drink 24 hours a day. You can walk into a supermarket and buy alcohol. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. You have gambling 24 hours a day. It's unlimited gambling 24 hours a day. And like anything else, once it's there and it's so abundant and so blatant, it's like if the old saying, if you, if a kid who works in a candy store, if you work in a candy store, you stop eating the candy. When you don't have it and you're trying to bring it in or it's a new idea, a lot of people will say, oh, no, it's no good. It's no good. It's no good. Having grown up and lived in Vegas as long as I did, I can't see the problems with it. It's funny when I I went to Colorado when Colorado first got gaming and Colorado had limited stakes gaming. You could have slot machines. You could have uh, uh, video poker machines. You could have poker and you could have blackjack but it was a $5 maximum bet. You couldn't have craps back then. And it, and it, it was only until two o'clock in the morning. You had to shut down your casino at two o'clock in the morning. It couldn't open until eight o'clock in the morning. A lot of restrictions on it. Same in Atlantic City, when Atlantic City first got gaming. And it's almost like they were so fearful of, of, of this, oh my God, this is gonna destroy everything. And then they realized, no, it didn't. And then of course the state pulls a nice revenue out of that. Um, 
in Colorado, the state gets 18%. So those machines that I was talking about, <laughs> they get 18% off the top. How about that? So it, it becomes a good revenue source. For, so then it's like, well, let's open up this and let's open up this. And then you realize, you come to realize that like anything, there's going to be a core group of people who it's going to affect, okay? Negatively, that's mm. just human nature. Yeah. But after a while, it just, that goes away and you just have, it's just another business. I don't know if anybody goes to the track here, but Tampa Bay Downs, wonderful racetrack. I've been there. And they have poker upstairs. They do. You know? If they were to get, if they could have up on that second floor, a regular casino, you would have more revenue for the state. They would have more revenue. And what that would do is that would make the horse racing better because then they would be able to have higher prize money. They could go after bigger named horses. They could have bigger staked races, which in turn, would drive revenue it would to all, the city. It would all trickle down. It all trickles down. It's yeah. like, it's like. And that's the first thing I thought of, Pete, when you said that. I'm thinking about the kickback to the municipality. The city makes, they make great money from that. You know, I'll, here's a perfect example. We are going to, here, we, in the, in the entire Bay Area, if the COVID virus doesn't get better, we are going to take an economic smack on the jaw on January 1st. Because on January 1st, if they don't have a college football season, you may not have the Outback Bowl. Now, I have was I was very fortunate to meet Jim McVeigh in the Outback Bowl when I first came here, and the business that I was doing, I was able to actually um, work alongside them. This is a huge economic boom for the city. Jen, they bring in teams from whatever state, and all of the people that travel. You're putting seventy thousand people. In, in, in uh, the football stadium on, on, on New Year's Day, but they've been here for a week. They've been over to Clearwater Beach. They've been in Tampa. The restaurants are popping. No, it's a great point. It's, it's millions and millions of dollars that come into this economy that if the COVID doesn't go away and if the, they don't have a college football season, this economy, which maybe hasn't felt it necessarily, that's going to be a that's going to be a huge you can't take 10 15 million dollars out of an economy no i'm glad you brought you know? that up i was going to say the same thing you know we did lose wrestlemania and my pitch to give wrestlemania a lot of focus uh you know at first i think some people were a little surprised that i would make a huge push for that i'm like this is a huge deal for one if wrestlemania would have been held and it got canceled if it would have been held at raymond james it is a really good chance they would have set the outdoor attendance record in tampa because of putting the ring where they would position it, being right. able to stack more seats, whatever else. But it's the same deal. You have people here flying in for an entire weekend, um, spending time, spending money, enjoying everything, whatever, whatever else. Um, Sports Commission, I know, was, was definitely hurting, losing that. You've got the Super Bowl, too. You, you know, it, it's two things. You, you get the Outback Bowl, then the month later, you got the Super Bowl, too. And do we have the Super Bowl? We this have year? the Super Bowl this year. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, it's if, huge. if we lose both of those for some reason, what an that's a backbreaker. Fingers crossed, we're trending in the right direction. The latest that we've heard about attendance at Raymond James is that the we understand that they're planning for twenty percent to start, twenty percent attendance, better than nothing. 
Yeah, so. well, you, you, you still the television rights will be there and all, but you're not going to have that money in the, in, 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 you know, within our local economy, and that hurts. That and, could be big. Well, I mean, you're already losing with the Lightning games too. I yeah. mean, but this is yeah, you, know, you want to get into sports and the money that that's being lost. I mean, here we go. The Lightning are in the third round of the playoffs now. Yep. And you know what those playoff, those home playoff games mean to people. I mean, they do. They did such a great job with the Thunder Alley and getting people out there. And they had the food trucks and everything else outside the stadium. That wasn't just for home games, Pete. They were doing that for any game that they played. Yeah, in. but they, even that they can't do. You can't even no. have the big screen. So no. hopefully we'll get on the other side of this pretty soon. Yeah, I think so. I think I think I really you know again fingers crossed and. You listen to the Department of Health stats every day. You know, I got I, I spend four hours every morning making sure people are up to date on that. I don't so. know. You know, I'm I I don't know any more than anyone else, but I do know I look at the uh, the COVID trending charts constantly, mm -hmm. and and I, I have my fingers crossed because they're all trending down. I'm not saying that this has gone away. I'm not saying it's over, but it seems like we've got some kind of a handle on it. All the spikes are going in the other direction now. I think we figured out, you know, the old people, people with um, uh, pre-existing conditions, you know, people are wearing masks wherever they go, just trying to take precautions. I, I think just doing that alone is, is helping. Um, I think so, too. I think so, too. You know, everybody is is well aware. We I think everybody knows that we need to be extra careful in, during flu season. That's been made abundantly clear yeah. now for months. So that's coming up on us. Same thing with the schools reopening and, and, you know, the precautions being taken. I mean, look, we you can only do what you can do, you know, and it's unprecedented for everybody. Well, so. and that's just what you just said. And that's what I find so <laughs> funny. It, it's unprecedented. So nobody knows what's going on. But yet, if you listen to the people out there, everybody knows everything, but nobody knows nothing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we talk about casinos a little more? Can we, can we talk a little bit more about, about your experience in it and everything else? What are some big takeaways? Because you, how many, how many years, Pete, did you spend managing? Because I know you spent time in Vegas and you went to Colorado um, altogether. I, uh, I was close to thirty years in that industry, maybe a little bit more, maybe so, thirty-five years. So all these years later, what, what kind of things stick in your head? Are there certain experiences that you had that you can't forget? Things that maybe went really, really well? Situations you got yourself out of? Maybe they were. You know, I, I had, uh, I met a lot of celebrities. Um, Who's I, your favorite? George Burns, if anybody remembers George Burns. <laughs> yeah, of course. George Burns was such a nice man. They, they were filming the movie, Oh God, there. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a call to come to the front desk. He needed something. And so I went there and this little guy, you know, he's just the nicest guy. And he goes, I, what can I do for you? You have the resources of Caesar's Palace behind you. What can I possibly do for you? Whatever you want, just name it. And he, he said he left his transistor radio at home. And he explained to me, he said, ever since Gracie died, I like to keep a transistor radio on my pillow next to me. Oh, that's funny. So I'm like, okay, well, this is like 19, I guess I'm going to say 78, 79. Yeah, late, so. late, late 70s. And I went to the bell cabin and said, go get a transistor radio. Go buy a transistor radio. <laughs> and he called somebody, he goes, they don't make those things anymore. <laughs> All right. So... I said, go to a porn shop. See if you can find something at a porn shop. Yeah. And he did. He went, he, sure enough, he finds a little transistor radio, bring it back. We run it up to his room. Perfect. He's happy. Nicest guy, you know. When he left, when he checked out, he brought it down to me. And he goes, here's your radio back. And I said, you can keep the radio. And he goes, no, no. He said, here, you keep it here in case I ever need it again. And we did. We threw it in the, in the vault. Joan Rivers. This is a funny story. Well, a, she's a pretty funny woman. 
but it's it 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 was um the way it comes about is i had a very very good friend who i replaced at caesar's as the hotel manager and he went to caesar's tahoe as the um general manager and when she appeared now she's making the route she goes to caesar's atlantic city caesar's tahoe caesar's palace she does that several times a year well when she checks in and she did that by the way pretty much up until her death yeah yeah. she she was a really hard she worked hard she She worked worked hard. hard yeah so she goes he she goes into caesar's tahoe and she does her act in caesar's tahoe and then she comes down and she's gonna play vegas so she comes into caesar's palace and i mean we've had all the biggest names there okay sinatra joan rivers willie nelson all these people and i never did anything extra special for them other than make sure that everything that was in their contract we had to have done in their itinerary and so she checks in she does the the first day and then i get a phone call um, that i have to call caesar's uh entertainment office in beverly hills and i'm you know, i can't imagine why i'm having to make that phone call but i make the phone call and the entertainment director down there gets on the phone and he just starts to just chew me up one side and down the other and i'm like i don't even know what you're talking about i have no idea how i could have made joan rivers so angry at me so he said he told me what my good friend had done up in caesar's tahoe and when she came into the hotel he had put like i don't know 100 150 dozen roses in her room to welcome her to caesar's tahoe so i was like uh okay great so i called him up and his name is mike mecca by the way and he's a great great guy but he goes I said, Mike, what's going on? And he just starts laughing. And he had this funny laugh. He'd always pound the desk when he was laughing hard. And he's, ah, I got you, I got you. And I said, thanks a lot. So I had to do something to fix it the next time she came. Because I went up, I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. And she was kind of- I'm Sorry um, that you didn't have 150 roses there? Yeah, sorry that I didn't acknowledge her coming in and, and, and make, you know, stroke her ego, to, to put it bluntly. Okay, okay. Um, but she, How was she when you when you went up there? She was rather curt, you know. It was like you know, like you know, mm. that's that's fine. I come to Caesar's Palace and you don't you, you don't do anything special for me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry, I, I, but trust me, I'll make good. I'm gonna make good on that. Well, I'm from New York. I'm from Long Island, so I I can be a bit of a a jerk at times. Okay, and um, what I did was next time she was coming, I knew when she was coming, so I went. And we always used to hire a, uh, for gladiators at Caesars when we had special events or doing something. We'd always go down to Gold's Gym and get a bunch of these guys. And, um, and if we needed Vestal Virgins, the same thing. So I went and I, I, I ordered 12 gladiators, okay, if you will. And they came down and they got into their, their, their costume. And I had 12 long stem roses. And when she arrived at the airport, we sent the limo. I told the limo driver, you call me. You call me the minute you're ready to turn into the property. And he did. And I had those guys, they went out and there were these steps leading up into Caesar's Palace. So I had six guys on either side of the steps. So when she got out of the limo, they would be right there for her. So once this happens, you know, like the crowd gathers when you have these guys standing there with these long stem roses. 
They know someone's coming. Something's happening, yeah. right? So the limo pulls up, and I walk down the steps, open the door of the limo, and I say, Welcome back to Caesar's Palace, Ms. Rivers. <laughs> as I turn, as we walk up these steps, these guys like kneel down on one knee, bend their head and extend a rose to her. So the crowd is just, you know, and she has her dozen roses when we yeah. get to the stop of the stairs. And I said, let me escort you to your suite. And she started to laugh. And she turned to me as we were going through the doors where only the two of us could be. And she goes, oh, you're such an <laughs> but we became friends from that moment on that's good. as i walked her to her suite we actually got to talk you know and she found out i was from new york yada 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 but um you know she turned out to be a pretty nice lady that's, good. That, that that's good that's a good story good ending i was gonna say you know there was I knew somebody in the hospitality business and they would talk about the weird things that celebrities or performers would request, you know, in like their contracts, right? So I always thought it was ridiculous. Like, I think he told me somebody just wanted all the green M&Ms picked out yep. and bowl them. But my understanding is that there's a there's a method behind that. Is that they, it, by making those weird requests and they put it kind of in the back end of their... Contracts. Right. It ensures that you've read the whole thing. That's... And is, is that, uh, that, that, that's that, part that of really it. is my understanding because you're going to take care of all their needs. Yeah. And remarkably, once you've done it once, especially like at Caesars where you're doing it <clears throat> on, you know, you have a, like a Willie Nelson. Okay. Willie comes in and he's going to do, um, he's, his contract is to appear like six times during the year. So you, you have everything done the first time mm -hmm. and then they'll tell you, you know, don't do this crap. For the next time you don't you don't have to do yeah, that you're now. good you're we, good we, we know you we, we cleared you we know yeah. you got attention to detail all that stuff he had the best parties i'll bet he did his backstage party it was cool no one could go backstage unless you had a like a, from a western a little western uh like a sheriff's sheriff star yeah sheriff star yeah. and it said backstage pass and only they controlled it only the willie nelson people controlled it and it was like, you know, he had a saying, it's, it's well known that Willie and, and the band smoked, but they would not, they did no other drugs and they would, they would not tolerate it. In fact, uh, his entourage, everybody, you always heard if you're wired, you're fired. Um, you know, they just didn't stand for hard drugs, but their backstage parties were legendary because while they were performing, it didn't happen after the event. Mm -hmm. And especially if it was the second show, because... They never left backstage. They had like 50 gallon garbage pails that were full of beer and bottles of Jack Daniel just floating in, in those bottles and smoke all over the place. I and mean, it was it was just every night was a party, you know? I got I got, Fun I, guys. I got I got two more questions. So one, with all the performers you had come through there, uh, who was the best? What was the best show? You can remember, right? And I'm sure you get a chance to watch all of it, but who put on the absolute best? Best show, best show in terms of the audience reaction. I would, I was going to, I was going to say audience reaction. Who was in? Probably it? Sinatra because everybody came there to see him and he didn't fail. Sammy Davis Jr. Another great, great show. Um, I, I, there weren't any really bad performers at Caesars, but Sinatra just blew the doors off. Okay. Best person I ever met, absolute best person I ever met, Muhammad Ali. Really? Muhammad Ali was, uh, 
he had to fight. Uh, he fought Larry Holmes there. And uh, I, my job would require me to, to deal with both uh, of the contending camps to satisfy all their needs. And I got to talk to Muhammad Ali just one-on-one. -on -one. He was just, we were just sitting there. Um, Angelo Dundee walked up. And while we were talking, and, and Muhammad Ali said to him, yeah, okay, I'll be there in a minute. That was he, his trainer, that was his trainer, he, by the way. He was talking to me about the fact that my military service, because I had served dur during Vietnam, I, had, I was a, a scuba diver on a, on a submarine. And I was just telling him some of that stuff. And it was, you know, he, he didn't go in the draft, and that was a big, and that hurt his career. But it was so remarkable how he, this, this great guy, this icon, right, listened to, to me. To, to, he was listening to, to my stories and, and just became, from that point on, I don't want to say friends because I, we weren't buddies, but there would always be an acknowledgement. When he came into the building, he'd come by the office and just say hi. If I saw him, if I went down to where they were training, because you could walk into the into the area where it they were working It says a lot about the person, doesn't it? It does. And and just just wave to him and say, how you doing? Good to see you, champ. Something like that. Because if you're, if you're in that always. world, and, and you and I have seen it. I mean, I've interviewed top sports stars, celebrities too. And if you do it in public, you see just how many people are trying to be a get a piece of them. Yeah. Just in a in a in a, a a block walk down the street. So imagine the fact he remembered you and and made it made it a point to say something. And that's why I remember him today because he was such a generous person. And uh just down just what a good good man. You could yeah. I mean you, when you talk, you know, you can talk to somebody, you know they're a good guy. Yeah, there's a great documentary as uh When We Were Kings uh and it profiles his fight with George Foreman when they went over to the Congo. Yeah. It's an incredible documentary. And, and, you, and you get to learn a little bit more. You learn a lot about him. It takes you kind of inside that a bit. And a funny guy, too. Very, I, I mean, very, very funny. Charismatic, beyond belief. Okay, last thing. Biggest <laughs> biggest mess you ever had to clean up? Aye, aye, aye. The biggest mess. Ah, oh, that's an easy one. The biggest mess I had to clean up was uh, the Sugar Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns fight. Prior to that event, um, since Sugar Ray Leonard had been in the facility before, we had a plaque on his on a door of the suite he stayed in and said Sugar Ray Leonard Suite. Well, Tommy Hearns had never fought there before, so he didn't have a suite. And you try to put the two different entourages as far apart as you can in the, in the hotel so yeah, they don't run into important. each other. Right. Well, somebody in the I don't know how or why, but somebody in the in the Tommy Hearns entourage happened to walk past the suite that said Sugar Ray Leonard. Now we had a Frank Sinatra suite, we had a Sammy Davis Jr. suite. There's all kinds of suites in the hotel. But I get a phone call to come up to the uh, at the time Harry Wald was the president of Caesar's Palace, and I get called to come up to his office. And as I come up, his secretary is looking at me, and I know I'm in trouble, but I don't know why. So I come into the room, and in the room is. Uh, is Harry Wald, and there is Don King. And Don King was a big guy. And he also had uh, his hair stuck up, so I mean, it gave him an even bigger impression, you know? I think that was the idea. And he's, and he's ranting and raving, and the, uh, the vice president of casino operations, um, Al Facinto was there, all, all these people have passed away. Um, but um, I was like, 
I walked in, I go, yes, sir. And he goes, <laughs> he screams at me, do we have a Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray Leonard suite in this hotel? And I was like, yes, sir, we do. And, he goes, and then why don't we have a Tommy Hearns? I don't know, sir. I, that was an oversight on my part because, because he knew full well, <laughs> okay? He knew every suite that was in the hotel. And he was just, he had, he had Don King in front of him and Don King's creating a, all gonna pull the fight, yada, 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 because Tommy Hearns people are all pissed off. I'm sorry, can I say pissed off? Yeah. So anyway, one thing led to another. He says, you get that fixed, you get that fixed, you get that fixed. So I went down to the engineering department. What most people didn't know is that that plaque, although it looked like it was made out of bronze, was just plastic and they can make them in no time. <laughs> all right, so I went down there, told the engineers what I needed. They made it up. Then they spray painted it, that kind of a goldish bronze color. It dried and went up with double back tape up on the wall, bang. Within, no, within an hour and a half, it's done. So I went back and I said, okay, it's all taken care of. He's got the suite, yada, and everybody was happy. Good. But it could have been an ugly day and it, it went away. Sounds you know? like you solved a lot of problems pretty quickly. Yeah. That, you know, it's really funny, James, because you say, you know, you build that foundation of, yeah. of learning. That's why I got the job as general manager. When I got promoted, the, the president of the hotel said to me, Peter, you know why you got this job? And I'm thinking, yeah, because I worked so hard. Not a lot. <laughs> and, and he said, no, he said, because your job is to stop the crap from coming up to the third floor where the executive was. You know everything about this hotel. You know everything about it. You fix the problem. You have the resources. You fix the problems. And that's what I did. There were many, there was vice president of finance or a lot of other people who ran that facility. But what my job was as general manager, more than anything was, was um, the fixer of the problems. You had a, you know, you had a guest who was on a, uh, a three-day binge who had lost, I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And now he's you know, getting sobered up and realizing how much money he's lost. Now he's angry. Now he's now he wants a pound of flesh. Look, <laughs> this is your, all your decisions along the way. Yeah. But they need somebody to talk to. You need somebody to to to, to, to get them to see things. And and that's what I would do. And if I needed something done, I could go to. Uh, and in those situations with people, when people get angry, maybe they've had too much to drink, they've lost money. What, what's the solution? Are you compliment some things? You, get, you can compliment some things, and other times you have to. And just like talking about the, taking care of our clients here now, sometimes you got to give them some tough love. Some tough love. Sometimes you have to say, "Hey, who twisted your arm? You know, whose fault is it?" Yeah. And 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 and, and it takes that. You sometimes. know, not everybody can do that. And that's that's a hard no, it, it, no. that's a, that's a difficult that's a really difficult. But that's uh, again, I was in essence, you might say I was groomed for it. I mean, yeah. I I worked for the hotel. That's mm -hmm. where that's who I work for. They signed my paychecks, and so uh, I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I, I'd say you did. Uh, look, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, you know, you you had an uncle that a lot of people might know. <laughs> yeah, uh, Justice Scalia. <laughs> Justice Scalia. I also so, had an uncle, just this is kind of funny. I also had an uncle who uh, served five years on a RICO charge in, in Texas that Rudy Giuliani prosecuted. He was the president of the Teamster Union at Kennedy Airport. Holy smokes. And so uh, when I went for my gaming license in Colorado, you have to put down if you know anybody who could be in any way related to organized crime. And 
even though he was my uncle, I, I had no proof he was, but I couldn't not put it on there. So I put him on there. So the did it help? You could put your other uncle. Well, on? I put the other uncle yeah, okay. on there too. So when I went for my, you have a whole series of interviews while you're getting uh, checked out, mm -hmm. and uh, the investigating officer, uh, he, he was a good guy, but he he went down and he asked me all these questions about everything that happened in your life. They go back 25 years, and you explain everything. They they already know the answers, okay? So you just go in there and tell them the truth. That's what they really want to see that you tell them the truth. And he gets down to the, you know, to these questions and I, he goes, so tell me about this guy. And I said, well, you know, he's my uncle. Um, we see each other at the occasional family, you know, funerals, weddings, baptisms. Um, I don't really have a lot of, you know, talking to him, but that's what it is. And he goes, okay, well, tell me about this guy. And I said, well, he's my uncle too. You know, same, same answer. I mean, I, so he goes, well, I guess we'll go ahead and we'll cancel. These guys will cancel each other out. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> I'm sure you have some great stories about about uh, Justice Scalia that you could maybe share with us. Maybe maybe a couple to, to I, leave I, on that. I I think the best one is he. The best one is the conversation that was about the Second Amendment. It's always stuck with me, because. You know, he was a real. Uh, he he knew it he knew the constitution right and uh he said to me just this was just in passing real fast like yeah the second amendment yeah you have the right to bear arms uh, it doesn't exactly say that but you know precedent has it that you can have an arm I said but you know it's to defend your family it's to provide for you and your family that was the reasoning behind it I said so you're entitled to a flintlock <laughs> Just a big thanks to Pete Scalia for taking some time out of his day coming down here to my studio and recording Off the Set. I drop a new episode of Off the Set every single Friday. You can watch the video version of this podcast on my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash TV. Hit the subscription button. really helps me out. And you can subscribe on every major podcast platform as well. Find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, James Tully TV. See you next time. This has been Off the Set with James Tully.